be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to Psalm 47. That text is also printed in the next page of the bulletin for you. Um, so we're seven sermons now into a series on worship, um, and I think we're finally getting to what uh, actually probably most evangelical Christians think of as synonymous with worship, and that's song, right? I mean, um, how many of you have heard phrases like, oh, the worship at our church is awesome, or we, re- we go there really for the worship, and they're talking about the music, right? Um, But as we've seen so far in our series, worship consists of more than just music. It consists of being drawn into God's presence, into the very relationship of the the triune God. And there's uh, many facets of worship. We respond to God's grace in the confession of our sins and our giving and our prayers. We're going to look at in the next few weeks um, how the word and the sacraments are elements of worship and that they're central to our worship. And one facet of our worship is our singing, right? Um, So... John Frame says in his book, Worship in Spirit and Truth, says, I don't believe that song is an element of worship as elements are defined within the Puritan system. Song does not have an independent function in worship. Rather, it's a way of doing many different things, praying, teaching, blessing, fellowshipping, etc. So um, you can consider it almost like a, an expressive uh, delivery system for, um, for word content. Um, so whether it's formally recognized as a particular element alongside things like the word and prayer and sacraments and giving, um, whether or not it's formally recognized that way, um, we understand that music doesn't monopolize the concept of worship. Um, you can't just say, I go there for the worship, um, and not include all the rest uh, that rounds out the, the service besides the singing. It's, it's one aspect of our worship, and perhaps it's the most variable um, aspect of worship from church to church, right? Because every church has a sermon, right? Every church prays, uh, probably every church gives, and every church uh, should take communion, right? Um, but uh, the music from church to church uh, varies greatly. And because of its variation, then it's often the biggest reason for choosing one particular church over another. Um, you know, all else being roughly equal, you know, which place has the best music is, is the question. So, um, so it's actually one of the biggest points of disunity, uh, not just within congregations, but between congregations, right? Um, people take it pretty seriously, seen in the fact that the debate about church music, what kind of songs we should sing and what we shouldn't, um, has recently been known by the term worship wars, yikes, right? Worship wars. Um, so prepare yourself for sweeping generalizations about what absolutely must be done with our music, about what distinguishes us from all those other churches out there. Right? Um, <clears throat> Brian Chapel says in his book, Christ-Centered Worship, says that the stumbling block hindering many churches' progress toward unity in worship is music. At levels more deep than most of us can explain, music communicates our values anchors our feelings, and expresses our hearts. The music chosen to lead us to communion with heaven can create within us the deepest experiences of either inspiration or isolation. Music can move us or repel us. 
People may advocate a musical style because they find it appealing or because they believe it appropriate. What makes it appropriate can be tradition, familiarity, a sense that a certain style will appeal to a target generation or people group. None of this can be proven by a Bible verse or a mathematical formula. So reactions to musical choices are often more visceral than reasonable. We rely on personal judgment, past experience, advice from experts, and expressions of appreciation or criticism, and we hope and pray for some level of consensus. The most important strategy for church leaders to pursue in uniting the church in worship is clear and regular articulation of gospel principles. So um, let's talk about those gospel principles and how they relate to uh, our worship music. Let's pray, and then we'll read uh, Psalm 47. Father, as we come to consider your word, we give you thanks for it, and we pray for your Spirit's help in illuminating the word for us, in opening our eyes and our ears to see and hear things from your word, and uh, we pray that uh, you would drive these things deep into our hearts so that we would be changed by your word and by the gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Psalm 47, to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations, God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God, he is highly exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So um, I had a hard time choosing which psalm to uh, go from this week. Uh, there's so many different types of psalms that emphasize different um, facets of our life. And uh, the psalms have been sung for thousands of years by God's people, and they express the whole range of human emotions and experience. Um, the genres from the book of psalms, you know, there being 150 of these songs that were regularly sung by uh, by Israel and then uh, by the church. Um, uh, they include uh, genres like hymns of praise or thanksgiving psalms or individual laments or community laments, um, psalms of confidence, psalms of remembrance, wisdom psalms, uh, kingship psalms, and so forth. And there are psalms not just located within that book of psalms, uh, but uh, psalms and songs and hymns scattered throughout the rest of the Bible as well. The, the songs of Moses and Miriam in Exodus 15 on the deliverance of uh, people of Israel from Egypt. Uh, the song of Deborah and Barak, the judges in Judges chapter 5. Um, Hannah's song on presenting her son Samuel to the Lord for his service. Uh, the Song of Solomon, which is a, a book about marital love and how that reflects the relationship between God and his people. Uh, the New Testament Psalms that are found in 
uh, Luke's gospel that uh, are sung by Mary and Zechariah and Simeon, the songs of the angels in Luke's gospel and also in uh, the book of Revelation, songs of the saints in heaven in Revelation, and then uh, snippets of early hymns of the church in Philippians 2 and Colossians 1 and so on, right? So um, the Bible is, is full of songs. The word of God is full of songs. And the church has always sung through every kind of circumstance, expressing every kind of feeling. The Bible is full of commands to sing. Not just examples, but commands. All over the place in the Psalms, uh, but for instance in Psalm 47, verse 1, clap your hands, all peoples, shout to God with loud songs of joy. So, um, we're not to sing only with joy. That's kind of the the theme of this particular psalm, Um, but joy probably should be present even in hard times, right? Um, Paul Tripp uh, writes a a weekly article, Wednesday's Words, and uh, this Wednesday's words uh, were particularly appropriate. I think uh, it was called A Sad and Celebratory Community was the title of the article. Read some of it. Uh, When you're sad, you don't really feel like celebrating anything much. But when you're celebrating, you don't want your good spirits dampened by reasons to be sad. But Jesus has called us to be a sadly celebratory community or a celebratory sad community. Jesus calls you to a life of uncompromising honesty and a life of unchallenged hope. If you're going to be honest, really honest, then you're going to be sad because of the horrible legacy of damage that sin has left on each one of us and on the surrounding world. Yet, we're called to be people of hope as well. When you begin to consider how magnificent God's love really is, when you begin to understand how powerful His grace is, and when you begin to realize that God is right now exercising both His love and His grace so that this world would be fully and completely restored, you can't help but celebrate. May you weep with joy and celebrate with sadness until he makes all things new. So, I think, ultimately, you know, whatever range of emotions we're feeling because of the circumstances of our lives, which are appropriate, ultimately our singing probably should be hopeful and characterized by joy. Um, Even in those laments that are found in the Psalms, Uh, Almost all of them have also an expression of confidence in God, in trust in God, uh, even in rejoicing in God's salvation. I think maybe there's only one psalm that's just kind of all bad, that doesn't have, and I, sorry, I didn't look it up, Uh, but joy is supposed to characterize everything. I don't want at all to minimize how, um, how difficult it is to find joy in suffering. Suffering is real, and suffering is hard, and that is right. Um, But the gospel gives our hearts plenty of reason to swell with joy. Uh, And joy, which we know is a spiritual, emotional frame, our text says should be expressed right out through our our hands and our mouths. Clap your hands and shout with loud songs of joy, it says. Our bodies are the vehicles for expression of our spirits. 
And, um, and the fact that we're to do things like clap and sing and raise your hands in worship, uh, it reflects on the fact that our bodies are important, that the physical world, that the material nature that we have as human beings um, is, is important, right? Not just the spiritual stuff is important. The physical stuff is important, like clapping and singing. Because um, we're not Gnostics, that ancient heresy, um, who teach that the, the physical body is a prison and that the spirit's all that really matters and that we really should want to just be free from the material world. Like, we don't teach that, right? Uh, communication itself, which is necessary for our spiritual life, for our eternal life, communication, the word of God, the gospel that comes to us through word, communication is itself, as we experience it and understand it, it requires the physical world, right? Um, we need things like sound waves and ears and parts of our brain to do the processing. We need things like visible and sensible objects for our bodies to see and interact with, right? We need sense stimuli. If we're going to interact and we're going to learn about God to put our faith in him, to be saved, right? So these things we consider spiritual, salvation, um, come to us through our senses. They come to us through our body. Our bodies engage in the communication between God and us. And God has given us song as a means of communicating what's going on inside of our hearts, not just for our own sake, not just so that we can give expression, uh, but for the good of others and to the praise of his glory. It says in um, Ephesians 5.18, which is a parallel to the uh, New Testament reading that we heard this morning, it says, be filled, plural, right? All of you be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And then our New Testament reading from Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you, plural, richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Right? Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, probably the way to understand that is psalms are um, God's word given as examples for how we're to sing. Hymns are those uh, maybe more, more deep and rich theological, long-lasting, traditional songs that the church has come up with. And spiritual songs may be the more local uh, or regional expressions, maybe simpler um, expressions of, of uh, the word of Christ that we're to sing to one another and to God with thankfulness. And we're, we're actually encouraged, uh, commanded several times in the scripture to sing a new song, right? So we don't think that the old Trinity hymnal is kind of the end of singing uh, content for us, but, um, but we're to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another for the encouragement and upbuilding of the church and to God, right? We're singing to God and to one another. It's a profound way to deliver the word, um, to deliver wisdom to each other, to express thankfulness to God, and to express the unity that we have as we're filled with the Spirit together, right? Um, Jonathan Edwards uh, said that um, the best most beautiful and most perfect way that we have of expressing a sweet concord of mind to each other is by music. 
When I would form in my mind an idea of a society in the highest degree happy, I think of them as expressing their love, their joy, and the inward concord and harmony and spiritual beauty of their souls by sweetly singing to each other. So singing is, uh, is encouraging to each other. We build one another up this way. So some practical applications kind of coming in the middle of the sermon this time rather than toward the end. Some practical applications. Come to church and sing loudly like our text says, right? Shout to God with loud songs of joy. Uh, others are supposed to hear you sing. You're not supposed to just sing when you're at home alone doing the chores, feeling pretty good about your relationship with God because you're dwelling on it. That's awesome. Do that, right? Do that. Meditate on God's word and let it burst forth from you in song uh, when you're alone. But um, others are supposed to hear you sing. So when it's appropriate to the song, sing loudly. Uh, and even if you're um, not a great singer, then just shout. I mean, it says <laughs> shout, right? Um, prepare yourself for singing on Sunday mornings. Uh, I usually can't sing very well after I've uh, eaten a meal recently, right? So I usually skip breakfast on Sunday mornings so that my voice works. <laughs> Think about things like that. Prepare yourself um, to be engaged. Because singing isn't only a matter of vocal cords. right? It's not only a matter of your body. It's, uh, it's not just your voice. Skip Ryan says this in his book about worship. <clears throat> Recognize you cannot expect to rush into church after an exhausting Saturday night and be worshipful. A late Saturday night may at times be necessary and fun. But if you always get less sleep than you need on Saturday night and are tired in church, can you be alert and attentive to the majesty and presence of the Lord? Get a good night's rest before Sunday worship and plan to be in your seat at least five minutes before the service starts. Worship takes as much effort as solving a complex problem in your checkbook or playing a good set of tennis. Concentrate on each phrase spoken, sung, or prayed. Think as you worship. Prepare to be able to think as you worship. Um, Psalm 150, verse 1, says, Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. In his sanctuary, which is here among us, and in his mighty heavens, which is not here among us, right? Um, this is a picture of, of connecting with the praise that is going on, not just here on earth, but also throughout history and around the world and in heaven right now, right? Our worship, our praise, our singing is supposed to connect historically and globally. So we sing old songs that the church has always sung. We sing songs that have been written in other parts of the world, not just in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and we also praise God, in the sanctuary, give expression that is based on who we are, that is maybe in a style that is particular to um, our locale. So we sing new songs, and we sing songs that uh, have been recently or locally rearranged to different music. Um, 
do things like that. Psalm 150 continues on. It says, verse 3 through 6, Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So clearly, all kinds of musical instruments are encouraged in worship. Um, Not just a cappella, not just an old organ or a piano, right? Uh, All kinds of musical instruments, and that means that we need musicians, right? Um, We need musicians. So make it your lifelong endeavor to be a musician. Learn that instrument or learn it better so that you can come and aid us as we praise the Lord. We need to honor God with the good theological content of our singing, which is why actually probably most of our songs uh, are, they kind of fit in the hymn or psalm category, right? Um, The good content of our singing. We also need to praise God in our deference to each other's stylistic preferences, right? We defer to each other's stylistic preferences, and that is praise to God. Because love should determine what we sing. Love should determine what we sing. Clearly, love for God determines what we sing. Also, love and consideration of each other. Because we sing together. We sing together. Um, Robert Weber has a quote that's in the beginning of the bulletin from his book, Worship Old and New. He says, Music is the wheel upon which the word and the Eucharist ride. The Eucharist is the communion, uh, the Lord's table sacrament. Music proclaims the scriptures in a heavenly language and provides a means through which the mystery of God in Christ is approachable. Music witnesses to the transcendence of God and to his work of salvation. God's heavenly court uses music to praise him. Music in worship draws the earthly worshiper into the heavens to stand with the heavenly throng as they offer praise to God. Music also induces an attitude of worship. It elicits from deep within a person the sense of awe and mystery that accompanies a meeting with God. In this way, music releases an inner, non-rational part of our being that mere words cannot set free to utter praise. Music also affirms the corporate unity of the body of Christ because it is something that the entire congregation does together, right? And we know from experience that not all of us will be moved in the same way by each song that we sing, right? But we sing together. Some find it easy to pour themselves enthusiastically into most of the songs that a congregation sings. Uh, Some will find it difficult to resonate, resonate with any of the songs that are sung really anywhere. Um, I've heard comments like, I won't come to your church because the music's too old-fashioned. Or, I won't come to your church because the music's too contemporary. Both those things about our worship. Or, man, sometimes the music is too slow. Or, man, the music's too fast. <laughs> about the same music. Even our musicians don't personally resonate with each and every song that we sing. That's probably good. That's probably good. Um, Because is it a failure 
Is it a failure of, um, of the style or the performance of the musical accompaniments that it doesn't have a universal appeal to everybody? Is that a failure of the musicians? Is it a failure of the musicians to consider the tastes of every individual who might be present? Is it a failure of the worshiper to appreciate what constitutes good worship music? Um, is it a failure of the congregation to unite in the spirit and devote itself fully to praise? Or, rather than being a failure, is this uh, dynamic an opportunity to join with our spiritual siblings, brothers and sisters, in an element of worship that we do not find entirely instinctive at every point? Is it an opportunity to be stretched and potentially to stretch others as well in love? Is it an opportunity to question our expectations and resist kind of the consumeristic culture that says, well, I go because I get something out of the music every time? Is it an opportunity to exalt the love of Christ that compels us to set aside our differences and to commit to something that we may not find entirely gratifying? Um, of course, it is that. It's an opportunity to exalt the love of Christ. Um, because Jesus Christ is our King and His loving reign is the reason that we sing at all. It's the reason that we sing. It says in uh, verses 2 and 3 of Psalm 47, <clears throat> For the Lord... The Most High is to be feared a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. So this psalm is a song of, um, of God's ascent as king to his throne in the temple. Right? It could be that um, scholars aren't precisely sure whether it was used um, in commemoration of the one time where the ark went into the temple, or whether it, it was used uh, regularly as a, a coronation psalm for the king as he went up. Um, in fact, probably it, it has something to do with both of those and more, uh, kind of a future look toward Christ's ascent as king. It was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus' ascent into heaven, right? The psalm was ultimately fulfilled in Christ. John Calvin says that his majesty which before had been held in contempt will suffice to quell the rebellion of the whole world. Right? He subdued peoples under us and nations under his feet because of his majesty. And what is his majesty like? That's the good news. Right? What is his kingship like? That's the good news because this king is no tyrant. Right? Just look at him in the Gospels. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And what does he do with that authority? He uses it to serve and he lays his life down for those who are his enemies. He has power over the material world. He has power over the spiritual world, over demons. How does he use that power? He uses it to heal and to deliver people from spiritual oppression. His miracles were a foretaste of what's to come. Everything that's been broken set back right, and made new. That's how he exercises his majesty, his authority, his power. 
It's for our good. It says in verse 4, He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves. So the heritage, the, the, um, the pride of Jacob is the heritage. It's the inheritance that uh, the people of Israel experienced, the land of Canaan. Um, and it was a glorious inheritance for them. And the inheritance that's promised to us as New Testament believers is not just that strip of land in Palestine that's been fought over for centuries. It's the whole world. It's the new heavens and the new earth. That's our heritage. That's the pride of Jacob that he has chosen for us. And the pride of Jacob, whom he loves, he doesn't love Jacob because Jacob is in himself lovable. He doesn't love you because you are in yourself lovable. He loves Jacob because of who he is, right? Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. He has betrothed himself to us. The king has betrothed himself to us. Read Psalm 45. It's a song of uh, delight in the king, right, as he prepares for his wedding. He's betrothed himself to us. He's promised never to leave or forsake us, but to be with us always, even until the end of the age when he returns again to fully establish his heavenly kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's our inheritance. That's our heritage given to us because of his grace. And when that happens, when his uh, kingdom comes in all of its fullness and all of its glory, and we inherit it forever, then we will join our voices with the host of heaven. In Revelation 5, singing, Worthy are you, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. Jesus Christ, the King of the universe, the Son of God, the heir of all things, shares his reign over the new heavens and new earth with us as we're united to him by faith. His inheritance is our inheritance. And in fact, by his grace, God himself is our inheritance, which is the theme of Psalm 16. He is a king worthy of song. And in fact, when everything is the way that it is supposed to be, all will be beauty and glory and song forever. So the song of the church now is just a little glimpse of the song as it will be in the world to come. And the only way into that song, into the eternal song, is into the divine life of the Trinity, being united to the Son of God by faith, being caught up by the Spirit into loving communion with our Father in heaven through Christ, which is worship. And once that's true of us, once we worship, once God's people are united with him in Christ, then song characterizes us because song characterizes him. Song characterizes us because song characterizes him as we're united to him. It says um, in verse 5, God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. We sing because God sings. God is a singing God. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a little bit about this in Mere Christianity. He says the, the living dynamic activity of love has been going on in God forever and has created everything else. And that, by the way, 
is perhaps the most important difference between Christian and all other religions, that in Christianity, God is not a static thing, not even a person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you'll not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. Beauty, dance, music, vibrancy, life, come from who God is. Three persons in one God. And Michael Reeves says in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, to hear a tuneful harmony can be one of the most intoxicatingly beautiful experiences. And no wonder, as in heaven, so on earth, the Father, Son, and Spirit have always been in delicious harmony, and thus they create a world where harmonies, distinct beings, persons, or notes, working in unity, are good, mirroring the very being of the triune God. The ultimate reality that stands behind music is not only fascinating, but unutterably beautiful. So our music, as, uh, as the church, our song as the church, has its foundation in the very being of God. And we sing not just because God is a singing God, um, but because he sings over us. He delights in us. He sings over us as he saves us, as he redeems us. Right? Uh, Zephaniah 3, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, and you shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And Jesus, our Savior, the mighty one who will save, stands in the midst of the congregation. It says in Hebrews 2, which is quoting Psalm 22, he stands in the midst of the congregation and sings praise. The Son of God himself is our worship leader. He's our song leader. He's the one who draws us into God's presence in a dynamic, beautiful, musical way. So this is no stoic God. This is no monolithic and distant God. This is a dynamic, vibrant, musical singing God who delights in us, who exults over us with loud singing. This God is beautiful to us. And he wins our song to him. And as we sing together in his image reflecting his harmony, reflecting the dance of the divine life, singing songs of God's love to him with thankfulness and to each other for our encouragement, we can even attract others to his beauty. Because what other community sings like we do? Close with verses 6 through 9 of our text. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. 
the princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Amen. As we prepare to come to the table, let's stand and confess our faith as we sing the Apostles' Creed. <laughs>